And that's what climate change is about. It is literally, not figuratively, a clear and present danger. We are in the beginning of a mass extinction. The ability of CO2 to do the heavy work of creating a climate catastrophe is almost nil at this point. The price of oil has been artificially elevated to the point of insanity. That's not how you power a modern industrial system. The ultimate goal of this renewable energy you know, plan is to reach the exact same point that we're at now. You know who's trying that? Germany. Seven straight days of no wind for Germany. Uh, their factories are shutting down. They really do act like weather didn't happen prior to like 1910. Today is Friday. That's right, Greta. It is Friday. And this is our own special Friday protest. Climate change roundtable number 89. Cops and robbers. Redux. I'm Jim Lakely. Vice President of the Heartland Institute. I'm your special guest host for today. Uh, Anthony Watts, your usual host, is is off. He's um, he's feeling under the weather instead of being on top of it like he usually is. Uh, my understanding is that he contracted a strange virus by eating a bowl of bat soup and some pangolin stew. You know, I warned Anthony to not get his pangolin meat from Costco, but he rarely takes my advice. So feel better soon, Anthony. We're thinking about you. Uh, as usual, we have our regular panelists here today, Dr. H. Sterling Burnett. He's the director of Heartland's Arthur B. Robinson Center on Climate and Environmental Policy at the Heartland Institute. Good afternoon, Sterling. How are you today? Doing well, Jim. Good to be on with you. Uh, and happy post-Thanksgiving, pre-Christmas to the entire crew. Yes, yes. Great time I mean, of year this year, for sure. Got a lot to... Uh, to both celebrate and bemoan with what's going on at COP28 right now. Yes, that's the big topic for today. We will certainly be getting to that. It's very interesting. And in fact, our very own Heartland Institute President James Taylor will be traveling to Dubai uh, this evening to be there all next week. So that's going to be a lot of fun. And also with us, of course, is big time fan favorite, Linnea Lucan. She's a research <laughs> fellow here uh, for climate and energy policy at the Heartland Institute. Linnea, looking very Christmassy festive. Welcome to the show. Yep. I'm... I caught a little heat for that behind the scenes before the show started, but uh, yeah, I'm going to like a Christmas fair thing tonight, so I'm just ready for it ahead of time. Um, yeah, everything is good. It was actually cold here for the last couple of days um, in South Carolina. I, my friends have told me that I brought the cold weather with me when I came back here after Thanksgiving from Chicago, so it's... Um, Finally starting to warm up again, getting above the 30s. So that's nice. Yeah, it was super cold up here in northern Illinois uh, for the last week. It's actually the, the cold weather has broken. But, you know, the winters here in Chicago are plenty long enough without it having it feel like uh, mid-January, late January in the middle of November, which is what it was. I mean, Thanksgiving weekend was very cold here. So things are getting back to normal. Of course, humans control the weather, so we should all feel very guilty, whether it's too hot or too cold or just not exactly perfect the way it's supposed to be. Uh, our I was about to say, the, the extreme cold, of course, is more proof of global warming. Yes, everything is proof of global warming. You know, if your turkey didn't come out good, it, that's probably on global warming as well. Although my uh, turkey is always perfect, so I don't ever have that problem. So, you know, my turkeys are global are, are climate change proof, uh, 100%. Um, anyway, so we, we're actually going to have a special guest today. Anthony was kind of a late scratch, as they say, in hockey. And uh, 
So we're going to have a special guest here today. He's actually doing a radio hit, I believe, right now, but he will be on joining us uh, midway through the show, and that is the great Steve Malloy, and I'll give him his proper introduction uh, when he does arrive. Um, um, but before we get into the, uh, into the meat of the show here, I want to ask you all to help support this show and support the Heartland Institute. Um, there's a lot of things you can do. One of them is just to smash that like button, leave comments, uh, share this on social media. All this helps us break through the evil algorithms that uh, channels like YouTube and frankly, every social media outlet in the country, maybe out or platform, I, I should say, probably outside of Rumble. Um, you know, it keeps the climate truth that we bring in this show every week away from people. It doesn't recognize it as being, even if you're interested in the topic, it won't show you other videos. Um, you know, we've had videos go viral just because they show up through the algorithm because people are kind of interested in learning um, information about the climate that goes against the government-driven dogma. So if you share this show, if you hit that like button, if you um, uh, leave comments especially, that all helps us kind of break through um, the barriers that are in place to keep material and shows like this from gaining a lot of traction. Um, and we always, we're always enjoying you know, the live chat that we have here on YouTube. And so we're going to be looking at your questions uh, later. A lot of people have a lot of fun. They chat and talk to each other. There's a lot of regulars that come on and enjoy being together during this show. So once you bring some friends along, if you know that they have uh, an interest in this topic or if you think they should be interested in this topic and learn a lot more about it, that being climate change, uh, bring them along. Let them know that we do this live every Friday at noon central time, 1 p.m. Eastern. And they can also have a lot of fun with you in the chat as well. And then lastly, especially during the holiday season, I want to urge um, the listeners and the viewers of this show to consider becoming a donor to the Heartland Institute itself. I mean, we're a nonprofit think tank. We're a 501c3 organization, so it's a tax-deductible donation to help support not just this program, but we've been a think tank for 40 years, and we're globally known for this, for this topic on, on promoting climate realism around the world, and we cannot do that without the support of, um, we have thousands of supporters from literally um, all over the country and some internationally that wanna support you know, bringing climate truth to the world. So if you are not currently a Heartland donor, I hope you will go to heartland.org. It's very easy to find the donor button up there on the top right. And uh, I hope you will consider, especially in the holiday giving season, and some people are trying to frankly give them money away before, <laughs> for tax purposes before the end of the year. Uh, this is a fantastic organization to support and we hope we can count on yours in the very near future. Yeah, get that, right. get that, get that tax uh, credit uh, on your, uh, you know, tax bill. Yes, yes, that's always good. A tax write-off. Tax write-off, yes. <laughs> All right, well, uh, yesterday, COP28, that's the Conference of the Parties, the annual um, United Nations two-week orgy of grift, delusion, and climate lies. It got, it's, it's kicking off in Dubai. We're gonna get to that circus in just a moment, but let's just uh, kick off the show, which I think is one of Anthony's favorite features, like we often do, always do, the craziest climate stories of the week. And as usual, there is a ton to choose from. We're gonna go first, Andy, to um, um, this story from, uh, where is it? There it is, from uh, the center square. And this is a study done by our friends over at the Texas Public Policy Foundation Cost of fueling an electric vehicle is equivalent to $16.33 per gallon. Uh, you look at the story here. The complete cost of fueling an electric vehicle for 10 years 
are $17.33 per equivalent gas, uh, gallon of gasoline, according to a new analysis by the Texas Public Policy Foundation. The study's authors, the, the study's authors say that a $1.21 cost per gallon equivalent of charging a car cited by EV advocates excludes the real costs that are borne by taxpayers for subsidies, utility rate payers for energy investments, and non-electric -vehicle, uh, vehicle owners for mandate and environmental credit-driven higher vehicle costs, which they say total $48,698 per EV. And these costs have to be included when uh, comparing fueling costs for EVs versus uh, traditional gas-powered vehicles. Um, and uh, Jason Isaac, who we've had on uh, this program, I believe, and also uh, in the tank, um, which is the Heartland Institute's um, flagship podcast over on the Stopping Socialism TV channel, uh, he says that the market would be driving towards hybrids if not for this market manipulation from the federal government. We'd be reducing emissions and improving fuel economy at the same time on a much greater scale, Jason Isaac said. Um, guys, you know, I, I, I want some... Cameron Schulte runs our government relations department here at the Heartland Institute. And uh, we went out to lunch and he has a hybrid, he has a hybrid vehicle. And as we were going and, you know, the battery would come on as we go and, um, and then it would, then it wouldn't. And, you know, I had the discussion. It's like, you know, if the environmental left was actually interested in what they say they're interested in, which is reducing CO2 emissions from personal vehicles, they would be embracing and improving hybrid technology. Um, and not going full EV, because as we're going to be talking about in this podcast, and we do in a lot of podcasts, you know, EVs are not remotely environmentally friendly. And they're also very expensive to boot, as this study shows. I, um, we, we had Jason on just a couple of weeks ago to discuss his own, to discuss his study. Um, it, it's a real eye opener to see what the true cost of these things are. Uh, the true cost is three or four times what you're actually being charged for uh, them at the uh, bill, but the rest of it's being paid by all of us. But I'm going to disagree with Jason a little bit. Um, uh, imagine that, me disagreeing with somebody. Um, I don't think if the market were allowed to function, even hybrids would be selling that much. Hybrids are also government supported. They have been in the end. People care about a lot of things more than fuel economy, except when gas prices are really, really, really high. And even then, there's very little elasticity of demand. They care about comfort. They care about towing capacity. They care about how many people they can pack in. They care about can you run your air conditioner and get on the freeway at the same time without uh, taking 20 seconds on the uh, ramp. Um, my mother has a hybrid. The batteries are not much cheaper when they go out. Your car is basically worth nothing when the batteries go out. Uh, you can't sell it for what it would cost to replace the batteries. Um, I, I just think if the market were allowed to function, people would still be driving. I mean, well, they, they'd still be driving what they already are driving, which is the Ford F-150, uh, the, the best-selling passenger vehicle, not pickup truck, passenger vehicle in America for, I believe, 20 years running. Um, people, I'm not saying they don't care about fuel economy, they do, but it's not the most important feature. And if it is, for those that it is, 
Hybrids are an option, but so are 40 mile per gallon Toyotas and other things that already get high fuel economy. The government doesn't have to get into it at all. Right. I mean, if people, that's the thing, people, well, you know, I'm old enough and so are you, Sterling, old enough to remember, you know, there were a lot of um, more fuel, uh, cars with higher fuel economy became popular in the late 70s and especially in the early 80s because gasoline was expensive. There was, the people were still remembering the oil embargo. And so the market uh, drove the idea that people wanted to drive uh, vehicles that were much more uh, energy efficient. Uh, Lene, I want to throw this to you. Um, there, there was a part in this story that uh, I just remembered I wanted to read out loud before. And uh, it's below the great graphic there that shows that uh, <laughs> how much more expensive uh, over time an electric vehicle actually is. But this, um, the study also assumes that EVs will be driven for 10 years and 120,000 miles, which the authors claim is a very generous estimate. According to J.D. Power, EVs lose 2.3% of their range each year due to battery degradation. I, that's probably a pretty conservative estimate. Uh, in part, driving EVs to lose value even faster than internal combustion cars. You know, they say that um, uh, your car, when you buy a new car, it starts losing value the, the instant you drive it off the lot. Um, and it would seem to me that the uh, ability of your electric vehicle's battery to power that vehicle also diminishes immediately when you drive off the lot. Well, it really is, you know, something of a different animal when it comes to the electric, the fully electric vehicles, because it's such a large battery pack that you need to replace when it does start degrading like that. Um, not everyone can afford just to make that replacement. And so uh, I can't cite a particular study, but there have been um, some investigations that have found that most people, when they get to the point where they need to replace their EV battery, they just get rid of the car. So it's, um, I, I, yeah, 10 years is probably pretty generous. I think most people tend to trade in their cars unless they're really attached to it earlier than that anyway. I would guess, sorry, my dog is making noise. Um, I would guess that probably um, it's more like six years for like a, nor like a gas powered car. But um, yeah, I don't know. It's uh they were they were being very nice to EVs to make that estimate. It still doesn't end up panning out very well for them. So you we know, know that the cost is actually a lot worse. And the EV owner probably isn't the one paying the majority of that cost. So they probably don't care. A lot of this is probably getting passed off onto other electricity consumers and um, taxpayers. Yeah, yeah, I think the chances of a electric vehicle lasting 10 years and 120,000 miles is zero. I don't think there's any way a vehicle would ever last that, an electric vehicle with current technology would ever last that long. The virtues of hybrids vis-a-vis uh, -vis electric is that if your battery pack goes out in your hybrid, you can still drive it um, because it does have an engine. That's um, true. That's, that's it, what I mean. Yeah. that. Yeah, that but, but that doesn't mean it's, it's going to, if you have a choice, you're going to choose hybrid over a regular gasoline vehicle. The, right. Another, you know, huge drawback that we haven't discussed of, of electric vehicles. I've had many, many vehicles. I've actually had one. The the very first car I ever owned actually caught fire when I was driving it. It uh, had a vacuum leak uh, near the uh, uh, the fuel line. Gas got sucked in and and <laughs> fire erupted. I have never, ever, ever had a vehicle catch fire sitting in my driveway, or <laughs> parked uh, at a grocery store or 
Uh, and I've had motorcycles. None of them have ever exploded and caught fire and killed people in a tenement building. Um, right. uh, that's a problem unique to EVs, just spontaneous combustion. Yeah. Um, yeah. Well, there he is. Yeah, Hello, Steve Malloy. Great to be here. Thanks for having me. As promised hey, to can our... Can I comment on this? Uh yeah, yeah, sure. I, I should I should introduce you first. Just, I should let people know who you are. I mean, well, I know you have right you have, a, you have Malloy, a label there, climate, climate hoax killer. killer. Yeah, climate hoax killer. Okay, so Steve Malloy is a climate uh, hoax killer. He's also the founder of JunkScience.com, and he's someone that the journal Nature calls quote perhaps the most influential climate science contrarian. But as we all know, the scientific journals and climate are all hopelessly corrupt, and you can't <laughs> believe anything you read in them. So. Uh, you still have that on your on your resume, Steve. Absolutely. So I heard someone talking about hybrids. I think it was Sterling. And I just want to make it clear that I oppose everything and anything that advances the climate hoax in any way, shape or form. EVs, hybrids, uh, even people like uh, uh, Bjorn Lomborg and Michael Schoenberger, who are like, you know, lightweight skeptics. Uh, none of this stuff is, is good. We, we need to just kill the climate hoax and not defend it and say there's a better way to do it. Uh, you know, yesterday, Lomborg had a piece in the Wall Street Journal about cost-benefit analysis for climate. It's all made up. So that's my intro. All right. Well, way to, get, way to hit the ground running, Steve, as I fully expect you to do. Uh, thanks for being on the show again. Uh, and we'll hope to have you on a lot more, too. You're a lot of fun. Uh, well, speaking of um, climate hoax, and if you don't like electric cars, uh, Steve, you really hate electric buses. Uh, our next story <laughs> is, uh, and I know uh, Sterling's a big fan of them too. Edmonton's fleet of electric buses failing amid manufacturers' bankruptcy proceedings. The problem with problems with Proterra buses have cost the city more than $1 million. Edmonton doesn't seem to me like a city that could just blow off $1 million, but who knows? Pro Proterra is the company that's already gone, right? Yeah, that's it's already bankrupt. Yeah, it's mm. gone. So, uh, yeah, yeah. So in the summer of 2020, uh, the mayor of Edmonton announced that electric buses will be um, deployed in the city's transit service. Now, for those of you who don't know, Edmonton is uh, in Alberta, Canada, and it's extremely cold there. Um, they love hockey, which they they probably start playing in August <laughs> outside. So it's pretty cold. Um, anyway, three years later, most of the city's electric 60 electric buses aren't fit to be on the roads. Um, and the compli complicating the situation is the fact that the manufacturers in bankruptcy proceedings in the United States, they were promised to be quiet, super efficient, and particularly efficient financially. Um, and now we're at the point where, um, what did it say? None of the, none of the buses are, um, most of the buses are not even fit to be on the roads. Um, they probably still have new bus smell in them and they still stink. Uh, let's, let's be clear. Uh, the, what was the headline of that story again? I thought the headline, you know, told the lie perfectly. It is uh, Edmonton's fleet of electric buses failing amid manufacturer's bankruptcy proceedings. Yeah. Yeah. As if the manufacturer's bankruptcy proceedings <laughs> has anything whatsoever to do with the buses failing. Right. The buses failing because the technology is bad, not because Proterra is particularly a bad manufacturer of electric vehicles. Electric vehicles, cars, trucks, buses don't work very well in extreme weather situations. They don't hold their charge. They didn't do it in San Francisco when San Francisco did it. They didn't do it in Connecticut when Connecticut did it. Edmonton is even worse. Of course it so, is. So um, the fact 
you know, what cost Edmonton all this money is not that Proterra went bankrupt, is that they spent so much money on idiot technologies. That, you know, every one of these battery-powered buses probably cost a hundred or two hundred thousand dollars more than a diesel or even a natural gas-fueled bus. They could have saved all that money plus all the repair costs, which, well, they're not getting repaired, right? So, it's it. it they sunk a lot of money into a poor technology to virtue signal. And now they want to say, oh, well, if only the manufacturer hadn't gone bankrupt. <laughs> yeah. Yes. Uh, yeah, no, let, Steve, go ahead. Yeah, no, you know, I got to say, I, I like electric buses. And the reason I like them is because they cost twice as much and they don't work. <laughs> and then my favorite part of electric buses, there is a video of a whole line of German electric buses. One caught on fire, then they all caught on fire. And so this is a great education. It's a learning moment, a teaching moment for the climate hoax. Yeah, 100% right, 100% right. You know, I saw the other day, I think New York City was doing a, uh, a pilot project with uh, electric garbage trucks and snow plows. And it was so, there's the video of the uh, the electric buses burning into, uh, uh, bursting into flames. Yeah, but Linnea, you know, oof, wow, that's pretty dramatic. I don't know. By the yeah. way, nobody's there with a torch. To, you know, yeah. there's no arsonist involved. It's just they were just sitting there. Climb it. Well, you know, if you don't have exact fare, I mean, that's what you get. So, <laughs> you know, so right. yeah, I mean, I think the only thing that would be dumber than electric buses in Edmonton would be electric snowplows and garbage trucks in Edmonton. But yeah. they tried it in New York City, and as much as they wanted a virtue signal, as much as they wanted to will it into existence, just oh, make it happen, uh, they they uh, cut bait on that. On that garbage. Do you well, want to? Do you want to know what's terrible about that one? Go ahead, Linnea. Go ahead. Um, what's we covered that story on climate realism a couple weeks ago, and um, what the worst part of that story is that so these New York uses garbage trucks as snow plows when they have a bad snowstorm, right? And they work on like twelve-hour shifts when they are doing snow removal in New York and especially in Manhattan. They have to get those roads cleared. It's too important to the economy and with all those bridges and stuff, they just, they have to get it done for safety and for economics. So these electric buses fitted to be snow plows couldn't make two hours before they had to be recharged when they were doing this pilot program. And the company, I think GM made them said, or no, it was Mac that made yeah, them Mac. said, said like told New York, this is a bad use of these vehicles. They can't do it. Don't do that. Don't do this. It's not going to work. And New York said, now nah, we're just going to do it. But, but even worse than that is they didn't cancel the project after it failed like that. They're replacing their public fleet with electric vehicles anyway including the garbage trucks and the snow plows, even though they only get less than a two hour runtime off of the charge. It's unbelievable how much they're willing to do to um, pursue this virtue signaling when yeah. the function, obviously, you know, there is no function. It doesn't actually work for what they need it to work for. Yeah. Let's be clear. The two hour runtime. So uh, in New York, it'll, it'll take them, 15 to 30 minutes or more to get to where they're having to plow from where they're stationed. And then the power starts going down. So they got to get back real quick before the power runs out or the damn vehicle is on the side of the road 
and, and someone well, has to run out with a diesel charger to charge it on site. Right. Uh, well, they have to use diesel chargers anyway, because a lot of times you lose power to the city when there's a big snowstorm. Uh, you're At least in my experience living in Illinois, you know, yeah, it, if we had a big, big major snow event, then, you know, there was always a tree or something that would fall on the power lines and put out the power for your neighborhood. Imagine that, you know, all of a sudden now all of your diesel or your uh, electric garbage truck plows can't even get charged without using extra diesel generators. Let's for just a minute, let's go back to the buses. You know, you saw that explosion. I want I want you I want the audience to think about this. You saw that explosion. Now, um I know a lot of kids who take buses to school. And I'm not talking about school buses. They get on public buses uh and and go to school. There are other kids in school buses and increasingly the federal government is encouraging localities to buy electric school buses. I don't want kids on those buses. Right. Yeah. Well, yeah. Steve, Steve Malloy, if, if uh, electric vehicle failures make you happy, you are living in happy town for the next year or so. Uh, and I love how it is also a dumpster fire as well as a bus fire because it ignited the dumpsters as well. <laughs> yeah, no, these are great public education campaigns that blue states are conducting for us. They're wasting their money. They're they're having disasters. Um, you know, the, the tragic part of this is that um, there's, there's been a rash of e-bike explosions over the last couple of years because e-bikes have really gotten popular. And, you know, it's not, you know, comical like, <laughs> like these German no. buses just burning. <laughs> they're tragic because people are dying. Yes. Uh, I think just a couple of weeks ago, there was an e-bike fire killed a mother and two sleeping children. In New York. Yeah. Yeah. And, and so these are tragedies that are, you talk about man-made, this is a man-made tragedy. What's the point of an e-bike? And, and, you know, when I was, when I was uh, growing up in the seventies and uh, I had grown up by the eighties, but in seventies, I think the um, CPSC consumer product safety commission had banned lawn darts because a couple of people have been killed. Well, a lot more than a couple of people have been killed by e-bikes yet no ban. Well, yeah. it's especially strange, too, because electric scooters and bikes and stuff have ex existed for forever. I mean, they've been around for a long time and they didn't have this particular problem until they recently. Weren't. But there's it must be the new battery. It has to be the LI, uh, the lithium ion bi yep. battery, because or and also I've heard someone argue that um, people are trying to do modifications on them so that they have a higher top speed. And stuff no. like that and people do that to electric golf carts all the time <laughs> I've, I've seen that happen uh and i haven't seen them catch on fire so there's a obviously there is a new technology that's out right now that is clearly not safe for public use um and should be looked into and probably pulled but this is the thing linnea i mean it's green technology so no one's going to look into it i mean the consumer product safety commission's got to be aware of it I mean, they were right on lawn darts, um, but you know this stuff is so politically correct that they're not going to touch it. It's because they hate fun, Steve. <laughs> <laughs> Look, there's yeah. your there's a phone catching up. Look, it's it's precisely what Anaya said. It's the battery. Look, that, that's right. why they don't allow you to have your computers and phones in the belly of an airplane because yeah. this could happen. That's there's why a, you have to have it out. There's scooters. There's been battery scooters for a long time. There have been battery golf carts, of course. Battery, uh, uh, what uh, I want to say, RVs, recreational vehicles, but I don't mean 
you know, uh, like Polaris and uh, Kawasaki four wheelers. Uh, they have lead, they have traditional lead batteries and they work uh, and they don't catch fire. Um, these, these, I think in New York, I think I read Steve a few weeks ago, maybe a couple of months that battery lithium ion battery fires in scooters, trucks, and cars. It's not just killing the people that own them. It's catching other people's houses on fire. Yeah. Are the, are, are the, have, have surpassed every other source of, of fires to respond to in new york yeah now imagine this happens in the uh you know like basement garage of an apartment building or an office building downtown someplace i mean it's just disaster waiting to happen yeah well it it has and they've had to get people out and they've not been able to replace the buildings and the things are so heavy they're destroying the nation's roads but they're not paying to uh to keep the roads up right you don't have the gas tax paying things but they're so heavy, they're putting more wear and tear on the roads. Well, and parking garages are yeah, designed well. for regular cars, not these heavier EVs. So if everyone has an EV, oh my God, garages are going to collapse. Yeah. Well, I mean, it just it, it just struck me that video of the guy spraying it with the water hose because you, you shouldn't do that for a battery fire. No one's going to be trained on that. No one knows that you can't use water to put out a battery like a lithium fire. Yeah. <laughs> no, if that starts in your house, you just got to get out. Yeah. Yeah, you can't fight that. You can't fight that on your own. No way. You know, it's not, well, it's it, not like a kitchen fire. It's not going to happen. So it, well, it, also know, ha- it also has emissions that aren't good for you, right? When when they've had a, uh, when they in in Australia had one of a, a fire at a uh, Tesla battery plant. I'm not talking about a, a plant where they make the batteries. I'm talking about a power plant. Um, they had to let it burn because they didn't have the safety gear necessary to get in there and fight the fire. Yeah. You know, if these things were, I'm not a big advocate for banning things, but if these things weren't mandatory, basically made mandatory by governments and subsidized by taxpayers, they would be banned. There's no way you would allow this kind of, with that kind of safety risk, there's no way you would allow those cars in, in multi-car garages and all of that sort of stuff. It's just, now, it's just absurd. Any well, other I mean, technology that had this many... Go ahead, Sterling. Any other technology that had this kind of profile as far as danger had already killed as many people as it has very publicly, very visibly. Uh, You don't have to, you don't have to guess about whether it's the cause uh, that threatened so many lives. It would have been pulled from the market already. Any other technology, any other product. You you know, the whole green agenda is about promoting things that are dangerous to people. If if they just, if if not just to kill you, um, you know, think of bike riding and you're encouraging people to, to ride bikes with cars. I mean, that's insane. Uh, this stuff, which, uh, you know, blows up, causes fires, kills people. Um, you know, we also have there's a great uh, op-ed or editorial in today's Wall Street Journal about how uh, New York State almost, you know, catastrophically lost power last winter because of the green agenda. And I mean, it, this whole agenda is just built on uh disaster and and danger is is awful yep well the the whole point of it steve is that is because we can change the weather um if we just do what we're told by marxists so uh to that end let's just have let's check in and see how it's going uh in our show notes today there's a a tweet from our uh our friend ryan maui uh from a couple days ago and it's a it's a 
uh, a map of the temperatures of Europe. And it says, as the major global warming summit begins, Europe will be going into its second week of deep freeze and getting colder. Yeah. Good luck with all of that. Uh, <laughs> Steve, if, if, uh, if doing what Marxists say, if living our lives in their virtuous uh, imagination is supposed to make the world better, why isn't it happening? Why is it so darn cold well, in, early in Europe? Imagine if they can do for weather what they've done for electric buses. <laughs> it's it's somehow going to cost twice as much, not work, and we're all gonna we're all gonna die, right? Well, I, it is crazy. I think um, they should take credit for the freeze, the things that we've already done. <laughs> there's a, there's a reason it's why working. It's so cold no, in it's Europe. It's working. Year. Is People that are freezing year? to death rather than burning up? That is not the hottest year. I'm sorry. And, and in the U.S., it's been very cold this week. It's been, I live in Washington, D.C. It's very cold here. I know it's worse in Chicago. Is that the hottest year? That's what they say, Steve. You don't believe them? You think they're, they might be fibbing? You think they might have an agenda instead of giving us real science? Yeah. How dare you, sir? Dallas, Dallas, Texas last week was 10 degrees colder than the norm for the season. Yeah. Well, I'm sure, I'm sure now that we're having this unusual cold, they're kind of cursing under their breath because, you know, this will add up for their yearly average because they've been going all summer. They've been going month by month. This is the hottest month ever. No, this is the hottest month ever. And it's all hotter by like 0.01. <laughs> right. You know, so, like <laughs> very noticed- slim margins if their data is correct at all. And um, it's, yeah, if it is colder, if it is colder than normal this month and into the next, then boohoo, I guess. I noticed they didn't uh, they didn't host the climate conference this year in Helsinki in December. Um, a, a, a person could dream of a winter snowstorm striking the UAE right now or Dubai. Yeah, uh, that that would be beautiful. You know that, that they had to cancel the conference because of the, but it's not going to happen in Dubai. But if they had held it in Edmonton or Helsinki or you know, Edmonton would have been beautiful because then they couldn't have gotten around without the public transportation. It wasn't working. But uh, well, Sterling, you know, they're having their own sort of Al Gore effect this year. It's not really with the weather, but it's with, you know, the president of the COP conference is the CEO of the Abu Dhabi National Oil Company. And he's using his position to sell oil. So it's it's well, kind of like the Al Gore effect. Not quite. but And, and aren't they also the ones that uh, that bought Al Gore's television station from him. <laughs> well, that's right. They are. TV. That's I, I believe. I believe that they are the ones that bought his television station. I, I funded by right. oil money. That's right. Yep. And yeah, so he's so so uh, Al Gore got rich on oil money. Oh, oh my of course. God. Yeah. Yeah. No. Yes. Well, you know, speaking of speaking of weather predictions, um, in our notes here today, we'll, we'll work through this. There's a story from 11 years ago. And it's relevant that it's from 11 years ago. And it's titled, this is from September 17th, 2012. Why are we reading a story that old? Well, it's because this story said, Arctic expert predicts final collapse of sea ice within four years. Professor Peter Wadhams, I'm sure you're familiar with him, uh, Steve Malloy. Um, He's one of the world's leading ice experts. And he predicted the final collapse of the Arctic sea ice in summer months within four years says it's going to be a global disaster and it's now unfolding in the northern latitudes. Uh, Blah, blah, blah. Uh, In an email to The Guardian, he says, climate change is no longer something we can aim to do something about in a few decades time and that we must not only urgently reduce CO2 emissions, but must urgently examine other ways of slowing global warming. 
such as the various geoengineering ideas that have been put forward. Well, wouldn't you know it? I have a feeling that the sea ice, uh, it might have made news this summer, Steve, if there was absolutely no sea ice in the Arctic. I don't remember seeing stories like that. Yeah, no, I think the sea ice was basically the same as the year before. I mean, the hottest year didn't really have any sort of effect in the Arctic. Um, of course, you know, I think uh, Al Gore was one of the first to predict this in 2007, 2008. He predicted the Arctic might be ice free as early as 2013 and 2014. He was wrong. They're always wrong. Every uh, prediction any of these guys uh, has ever made has always been wrong. Um, and, and I'm not surprised because, uh, you, you know, as we learned through Climate Gate, uh, the, the science has been completely rigged in this. As we've learned from the great Anthony Watts, temperatures are completely bogus. Um, you know, what I, what I recommend to, to everyone is, I think it was uh, last month in October, maybe, uh, these old retired statisticians from Norway Statistics did a, a report on what they, th what they thought about climate alarmism, and they really took it apart. And, um, you know, just basically described how the, the data and statistics are really lousy. We have no idea what's going on, yet we've created this entire... Uh, or they've created this entire hoax, uh, which they keep promoting, and um, you know they're never held accountable for it. Yeah, I, I report on that Climate Change Weekly about uh, probably two or three weeks ago. Yeah, uh, that report is is an important report. But you know, the sea ice thing, the sea ice has been relatively flat for more than a decade. It 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 right. it waxes and wanes. It, it always has. It goes away in the summer or it declines in the summer, and it and expands. During the winter, uh, recently it has uh, increased faster during the uh, fall than it has for the average for the past decade in this this year. It did the same the last year. Um, sea ice hasn't gone anywhere, and when they started measuring it and started all these alarming calls, I mean, you could have you could have uh, pulled up an old New York Times article. I think it was titled "The End of Snow." That's more than a decade. I think it's 2007, 2008 that that, that came out. Um, what they find is they started measuring the sea ice, the, the ones they, they want to talk about, the measurements they want to talk about, from a very high point. Historically, they estimate that uh, going into the uh, late 1990s, early 2000s, sea ice had reached an extent that it hadn't been for the entire century. It had grown right. and grown and grown. Right. And so if you choose a high point to start your statistics from, to start collecting data, and the high point just doesn't sustain itself forever or keep going up, then you go, oh, my God, the world's ending. The sea ice is declining. But what happened is it plateaued, it went down, and now it has uh, set a new sort of plateau. Yeah. So, yeah, so that's, that's really interesting, Sterling, because um, oh, yeah, there's know, the, satellite, the satellite era started in 1979, which is when they started monitoring sea ice. And that just also happened to be the, the tail end of the 20th century uh, global cooling. Yep. And so you had maximum sea ice and then that's when they start monitoring. And of course, it's all downhill from there. But we really have we don't know what was on the other side of 1979 and it's really hard to compare. Um, you know, Tony Heller has done a great job of going through uh, early 20th century newspapers and finding reports about Arctic ice and predictions of you know, gloom and doom from the 1920s and 1930s. 
so it's really, you know, it's really dishonest that they started in 1979 to pretend that, oh, this is all because of emissions. I mean, 1979, you know, the end of that little ice, uh, that, well, the 20th century cooling is also the beginning of the series of El Ninos, which have been driving warming since, you know, to the extent there's been any, since 1980. So, you know, it's a really, uh, uh, you know, an inflection point in, in uh, recent climate history and um, not, you know, it, all that, they only, they only care about what happened after and they misrepresent it. And it's, it's just, it's nuts. Well, and, you know, let's be clear though, sea ice loss should be expected, right? Like if we're exiting a major glaciation period, then I would imagine that the glaciers should be retreating and that you should be hoping that they are instead of doing the opposite of that. There's this weird kind of ethos that seems to be common on the climate alarmist side, which is that uh, Earth is supposed to be in stasis. <laughs> like, <laughs> and and of course, the smarter ones will, you know, say no. It's because we think that it's more, you know, that it's accelerating beyond anything that's ever happened before. So it's dangerous, and you don't know what's going to happen. And I understand that perspective. I think they're wrong, but I understand that. But there are some that are very like. It shouldn't be moved. The ice should not be going anywhere, no matter what, ever. <laughs> it should be exactly the way it was in the 1970s when I was a kid, or we should have exactly the same average weather as it was. Uh, but that's the Earth has never been in stasis, yeah. and so we shouldn't expect it to be. And so the way that they take advantage of this is that they use that false kind of perspective that we have that I think really comes from some of our and Michael Crichton talked about this in State of Fear, um, our, our idea about how you do nature preservation, trying to keep a landscape exactly the way that you found it, it's basically impossible without like super aggressive management um, because, you know, any, anytime anything ever happens, it's going to change. Another species comes in and it changes the landscape in one way or another you know, bison terraforming basically the entire plains. Yeah, it's, it's constant uh, intervention. It's constant intervention. Yeah. You have to aggressively manage that. And that's what they've learned up in Yellowstone. Um, so it's, I think that they, that that's kind of the way that they're looking at the whole planet now. Well, is that they want to keep it exactly the way it is right now. It cannot change. It comes but that's from, just, we have a field now that hasn't been a science for hundreds of years or, or even more than a hundred years, the field of ecology came about in the late sixties, early seventies and the early ecology, it's now debunked, but the early ecologists believe there was something called a climax community where uh, it was sort of uh, an Aristotelian view of communities. You reach your final form and then it just sort of stays there. And uh, of course that's not how ecosystems work. They're constantly churning and turning over. They do go through stages and then they reach the climax community and a fire comes along or uh, a freeze and it starts all over again. Or a different thing comes along like ice coming down, scraping the surface uh, in, in the form of ice uh, uh, glaciers, glaciation. And then it starts all over again when they retreat. But the, the point is, there's never been a climax, so-called climax community. There's never been a stasis on Earth anywhere. Um, it's only relative to people's uh, short lifespans that they feel like these things have, have gotten weird 
so, if, if you look back since the last glaciation, I mean, since the last ice age, there's good evidence, proxy data, uh, where they find shells and, and, and different things that the sea ice and that the ice glaciers were much smaller 6,000 years ago than they are today. So they've grown and now they're retreating. But well, there were no power plants back then. 6,000 years ago, the Alps were ice free. Certainly, I think you raised a good point. Um, and you know, not, not, nothing that you said there was rocket science, and especially people like uh, James Hansen and Michael Mann, and pick the PhD climate alarmist you want. They should know this, and they do know it, they but do. they don't care and they lie. And I think Linnea also hit, uh, you know, she said that the, the key word she said was control. This is all about controlling. If you can convince people that. You know, uh, we can go back to the you know, days of yesteryear when they imagined things were better and just give me control and, and we'll make it all better. And that's what they're trying to do. Yeah. I mean, if you look at I mean, you don't have to study all the science to understand that it was obviously colder in the past than it is today. And that that is a natural thing. I mean, look, I mean, there's paintings of um, a frozen Thames River and people ice skating on it. That, that was not pulled out of the imagination. You know, that was happening. And so that's why they painted it. Um, and if you, you know, you can be uh, not even a high school uh, level educator. You can not even have finished high school and understand, huh, huh. The Thames never freezes now. So it must have been colder back then. And we didn't have any cars. I mean, that's why I think they're losing this debate. Um, you know, this is despite constant propaganda from basically cradle to grave of, mm -hmm. of, of people in the West. Vast, they, they still can't get a majority of people agreeing that humans are responsible for warming the planet and that government needs to do something to stop it. They're, they're, because they're, they're, it doesn't make, because it, you can't, you can lie, but science and common sense and observation eventually smacks you in the face. Almost every, you know, almost certainly every year, but it, it's, it's often more, more often scientists are finding areas where they find, uh, civilizations, entire roads and, 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 you know, things like arrowheads and baskets and clothing that has been under ice for hundreds and thousands of years. How to get that there. Meant, that meant it was ice free back then when those people dropped that stuff, right. uh, when they abandoned their homes in those regions, when those roads were given up, those trade routes were given up because the ice came, but before the ice came, it was warmer and they were traveling and living right. there. Right. That happened, folks. And it's at every, almost every month, you're finding a new report on this stuff where yep. things that have not been seen for 7,000 years. Well, what does right. that tell you about what but, was happening 7,000 years ago? But Sterling, it's funny because when they write those stories, they pretend that it wasn't warmer back then, that the melting has revealed this and that is proof of melting. Well, of course okay. it is, but it's. It's not what they're trying to prove. All you got to do is think, well, how did this thing get there in the first place? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Magic. Climate <laughs> magic. Even more recently, when they find when they find like World War II airplanes that crashed in the Arctic, right? Yeah. And they're under ice. Well, hold it. So from the 40s to this through the late 70s, there was a measurable cooling, and scientists were warning, oh, the the next ice age is coming. Well, now it's melting again, and they're finding these airplanes. It's like Okay, that means that they were retreated farther back then. Right. Well, see, this is why we uh, we we send 
James Taylor to Dubai, the UAE, to uh, walk around with placards. You know, like the crazy old guy with the end is near sign <laughs> yeah. uh, on the corner, the street corner. That's not going to be James. James is going to be carrying a sign that says the end is not near. You know, we we're, it's all going to be fine. It's uh, <laughs> it's going to be quite a quite a lot of fun a again with our friends at CFACT uh, as well. Craig Rucker has been a guest on this program, so uh, we'll be we'll probably maybe we'll have both those guys come give us a debrief from uh, the land of of crazies. But speaking of that, um, we are probably going to go a little long today, but we shouldn't go three hours long. So let's get into the main topic here at the forty-eight minute mark. Uh, Andy, there's a story here for the BBC. Um, well. Steve, let's not just let's not uh, let's not rip on the cop completely. It's not a complete and total waste of time. It apparently is a great place to make oil and gas deals because <laughs> that so something useful is coming out of this after all. Uh, so one of the things I've really enjoyed, I, I subscribe to emails from the uh, the climate writers at the New York Times and the Washington Post and the uh, and the Guardian and other places. And they've been very upset the last week, 10 days, when they learned that, um, first of all, they were not comfortable with the uh, climate conference being held in an oil, in a petro state, a petrol state like uh, the UAE, but also that they were aghast that um, the, the sultans who run that country and run their uh, energy industry were, were um, using the, the, this global meeting to set up great deals for um, uh, exporting importing and uh and and exchanging fossil in the fossil fuel market uh out there so uh you know they they kind of denied that it's happening but they kind of half uh you know kind of half-assed their denial and um you know they're they're using cop to make deals and this is good news guys because that means perhaps the um virtue signaled complete collapse of the global energy market uh, and our power around the world actually won't happen because there are some people out there that are still going to make sure that we have affordable energy, at least in some places on Earth. Yeah, so it's funny today. Um, the the uh, CEO uh, of the Abu Dhabi National Oil Company and COP28 president, Sultan Al Jaber, or something like that. Um, he uh, he announced that uh, Abu Dhabi was going to uh, be contributing thirty million dollars to this climate fund. Well, what the climate fund is, it's going to be an investment pool managed by BlackRock, and I can imagine what what they're thinking of doing is um, you know marketing Abu Dhabi oil. Possibly the climate angle is to displace coal in Africa and replace it with Abu Dhabi gas. But of course, in the end, you know, as uh, and, and, and this is somehow supposed to reduce emissions. But of course, in the end, it will only increase emissions, just like in the United States. Uh, we, we have gotten rid of coal, but our emissions have, have been increasing. You know, it, it, that, that story, they're aghast. I mean, I, I love the way uh, uh, Jim put it. They're aghast. They're shocked that oil deals were going on in, in Abu Dhabi, uh, in Dubai. Uh, it reminded me the first time I, I, I saw the headline, uh, it reminded me of that great scene in, uh, Casablanca where the, uh, the cop, uh, starts raids the, uh, the bar Rick's cap, Rick's Rick's cafe. Right. Yeah. And he says, he says, I, what are you shutting me down for? He says, I'm shocked. I'm shocked to discover gambling going on here. 
And the waiter goes up, you're winning, sir. And he goes, oh, thank you very much. <laughs> yeah. yeah. They're shocked that an oil sheikdom would make oil deals while everybody's there. Um, uh, you can't make well, the guy. Out. The guy's probably making deals all the time. I mean, he yeah. has denied denied what they've accused him of. Uh, it's just probably his normal. He's the CEO of an oil company. He, he makes deals every day. Of course, some of it is going to happen while he's doing cop stuff. The whole thing is just kind of crazy. Yeah. Yes. Well, uh, we're going to be getting to uh, to questions. But yeah, I mean, I, I do think that's the good. That is the good news that it's a, it's not a complete waste of time. <laughs> I mean, somebody's getting something out of it. Other than, uh, you know, all the kleptocrats and all the grift that's going on. Somebody's doing some actual business deals. So, and we're going to um, get more emissions. So, yay. Yeah, <laughs> yeah we there need are to some, the world. There are some green groups that are trying to boycott the conference because they say it's, you know, so bad that all these deals are going on and everything. Um, but it seems like most of the world leaders who really enjoy the nice, like, banquet dinners and stuff are just completely ignoring them. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> And, and and boycott, they're not even allowed in to start with. <laughs> you right. know, by boycott, yeah. What does the boycott mean? Does that mean they're not going to show up and be at the, the, the second section, the other area where yeah. all the NGOs are? I'll wager they're there, but if they're not, well, at least they're then living, uh, you know, living up to their uh, you know, what they say is important. You know, they didn't fly in jets to get over there and they're not having four star meals. Uh, but my suspicion is they're there. Yeah. Well, I'm, I'm boycotting being cast as the lead in the next Marvel superhero movie. I will not do it under any circumstances. So in the same way. All right. So, that's uh, brave, so Jim. <laughs> stunning and brave. That's me. So, uh, there are some deals that apparently will be made. And of course they're, they're going to be made by the Biden administration. They're going to, of course, hurt the United States. There's a story here from the uh, daily caller. The U.S. backing a new plan to cripple coal industry at U.N. climate conference. Leave it to the Biden administration to get the worst out of this uh, out of this conference. After all, right. they are seeking uh, they're set to back a plan that would crush the coal industry at the upcoming climate summit. Reuters reported on Tuesday. The Biden administration will reportedly support a French plan to get the countries of the world to ban private financing of coal fired power plants during the um, upcoming COP28. The plan is likely to drive a rift between countries like the U.S. and France and those like China and India, which are reliant on coal to feed their economies, ch cheap and reliable energy. Uh, guys, this is um, actually serious. This is serious news and not and not very good news that um, I guess codifying into some sort of international agreement, um, something that they kind of are doing on the sly, and that is um, destroying the coal industry in America while letting, of course, letting China and India burn dirtier coal and do his, do whatever they like. I think um, it's a joke, Jim. I, I think you're wrong. I think it's a joke. They you think it's a joke? I, yeah, I, let I, me, I, no, let me explain why. Okay. Let me explain why. You said it. Pri we're going to ban private financing. Well, first off, uh, the UN's climate conference has no reach in private banks in uh, these countries unless the governments endorse it. Secondly, most of the financing of coal is being done by governments. It doesn't touch China's big development funding. It doesn't touch India's big development funding that are funded by the government. That's not private finance. That's the government saying, we will use more coal. So, uh, oh, once again, it's another thing they said, we walked away. We've signed a big treaty. There'll be no more private finance. But governments are doing most of the funding. 
All right. Am I wrong? So I worked in the coal industry for a number of years. Um, and uh, we use Goldman Sachs. Uh, does that mean Goldman Sachs is not going to be allowed to, to finance uh, U.S. coal operations? I mean, 20% of our electricity is still provided by coal. If they have no access to banking in the United States, is that what Biden is trying to do? I mean, that sounds unconstitutional. Isn't that what DEI, isn't that what DEI stuff is, uh, Linnea? Is, guys, isn't that, you know, part of it is that there's the debanking well, stuff that, that kills the planet. Isn't that isn't that a real yeah. movement? Doesn't this give momentum to it? Well, that's exactly what ESG is supposed to be doing. Um, we've we've talked about that on in the tank. Uh, we've talked about that here. Uh, the whole debanking issue. You know, if you're a company that says the wrong thing on Twitter, or if you are involved in the fossil fuel industry, then um, they're going to find a way to convince banks to not invest in your projects or to not give you loans. Um, it's, it's happening, but I really, I think Sterling might be right on this one. I really don't think that Biden's going to be able to do anything actually with this. He might talk about it a bunch. He'll go and he'll read off something that's where he gets to say, we are planning to stop dirty coal, blah, blah, blah. And then, uh, everyone will applaud and then he'll walk off the stage and go, eat pudding or whatever it is that he does <laughs> and and uh and then it'll be it'll be gone from the news cycle in like a week and no one will stumble. ever talk about he'll, it again he'll stumble on the way to the children's table to eat his pudding uh, <laughs> so, so, so if goldman first off like i said they still have to pass domestic law to, to get this done secondly does anyone not believe, does anyone believe, he can, she can shut down coal plants in the U.S. He's doing it already. I'm not talking just the U.S. Biden can do a lot of bad things in the U.S. I'm talking globally. They're talking about ending coal use. That's not going to end coal use. But my suspicion is, even here in the U.S., will we have coal plants? Uh, they're going down already. But will we have coal mining and shipping to overseas? My suspicion is China might get in the game to finance uh, continued coal production here or India might. And are we going to stop that? Are we going to tell them no? Uh, because if we do, if I were China's uh, dictators, I might say, well, okay, maybe you don't need our graphite or you don't need our rare earth minerals. If we can't get coal, you know, if, if we, if we can't run our economy the way we want to, and you want to restrict us, then you can't have what you say you want and need. In the end, Biden and France don't control the world, and they don't control world global coal production. All right. Well, you know, it's not easy to, to, to talk me off the ledge on this kind of stuff. I get a little worked up. So I'll take one step back, and maybe this next story will have me take two steps back, because we have talked on the In the Tank podcast and others on how um, the environmental left is convinced that um, modern farming, especially the raising and slaughtering of animals for meat, is probably the worst thing we can do. Everything's the worst thing we can do. And that's, I guess, the newest worst thing we can do. Flying is bad. Driving cars is bad. And now eating steaks are bad. However, I see here from this story from The Guardian of All Places that there are plans to present meat as sustainable nutrition at COP28 and that the industry intends to go full force in arguing that meat is beneficial to the environment at the at the cop. And so 
And so I, I, I'm guessing the Guardian doesn't like this news. So it's, uh, <laughs> but it's presenting it as a warning. Big right. meat, big meat companies and lobby <laughs> groups are planning a large presence at the COP. Uh, the files show that the world's largest meat com company, JBS, is planning to come out in full force at the summit, along with other big industry hitters, such as the Global Dairy Platform and the North American Meat Institute. Um, and so, you know, they're going to be pushing the idea that is common sense. And I'm actually really glad to see this. Uh, Steve Malloy, I know you probably share this frustration that um, industries that have influence and have power... Um, um, to protect their industries from environmental nut jobs, trying to shut it down, trying to make our, our way of life worse, seem to just sit there and take it and never fight back. Um, I actually find this extremely encouraging that um, big meat or whatever you want to call the, uh, the big farming of, uh, of meat production out there in the world has decided to show up and if not protest, at least find a way inside to tell the truth that the that modern farming has made human life so much better, not just because steaks are delicious, but because the nutritional value that we're able to do through modern farming gives people longer lives, better lives, and uh, is great for society all around. So much of my life has been sustained by steaks, cheeseburgers, and ice cream. Uh, so I'm glad that they're finally defending themselves. I don't think that you can really defend yourself by adopting the language of the other side, sustainable. Right. What does that mean? It has it has no meaning. Um, mm -hmm. I would have a lot more respect for these people if they would just come out and say this is junk science. Not because I have any particular interest in that phrase, but you know they could also <laughs> they could also use climate hoax. That would warm my heart. Um, <laughs> but I just there's there's no upside to defending yourself without defending yourself. And and the meat industry is guilty of this. The oil industry is guilty of it. The coal industry. The car industry and the car industry, of course, is now being screwed by Joe Biden and, you know, trying to play the climate game. And it just doesn't work. None of this works. You know, I, I, I I'm under the impression uh, and, and from personal experience, you know, when I first started doing this stuff 30 some odd years ago, uh, there were still some businesses that like to work in reality, real science and real economics. And they would argue those things uh, somewhere along the line. They just threw that all away and 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 decided maybe we can surf these waves after all and they and they really can't it's just a disaster the car companies i think are going to be and, and evs are going to be the textbook case for the disaster of industrial planning central planning um but you know at, at, on on the bright side at least they're trying to do something yeah, no, I, I like the fact, I, I agree with, with Steve 100% that I wish they hadn't adopted the language. Uh, it, it's like, it's like, oh, we're good too. You know, <laughs> Fred, Fred Smith had, had, had a state, statement about air pollution. What's the difference between uh, uh, a power plant uh, with uh, scrubbers, you know, the, the, the comparison of the power plant with scrubbers and a, a child without a diaper and with a diaper, it's just uh, how the emissions are captured, right? Well, here, the meat is just buying into it, but they're trying to say, we're good too. I, 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 I haven't stopped beating my wife yet, but I'm getting, I'm, I'm beating her less often than I used to. So yeah. we're, we're, we're good too. Um, but my suspicion is what they're doing there is trading sides of beef for barrels of oil. You know, the, the, the deals in the back room, they're smoking the cigars and they're saying we can deliver this much uh, uh, beef and pork 
uh, how much oil can we have? Well, I'm really glad that I didn't have to be the one that comes in on this like a wet blanket, uh, like I normally have to, because I, I just hate it when companies do this. When, when they come in and, as Sterling said, say, hey, we're good too, actually. It's too late, meat companies. It's it's way too late for you to start trying to play this game. You've already, you know, already sold your position, just like Exxon already sold their position away. Um, you know, when it comes to when things start actually passing in, uh, or like when judges start erring on the side of the Greens, in these lawsuits that they bring up all the time in order to just annoy the oil companies usually when meat industry companies start getting dragged into this for climate change issues they're already on record talking about how carbon emissions are killing the planet yeah I, it's they've they've already sold their position it's yeah. too late and, and we can't i don't think i think we've got to mention we haven't mentioned and uh, i'm sure it's been done before but so the issue with, with meat production and just livestock in general is methane. Uh, of course, methane is irrelevant as a greenhouse gas. Um, you know, it, it has greenhouse gas properties, I guess, you know, hypothetically in a laboratory maybe, but in the real atmosphere, it has, you know, no discernible effect uh, as, you know, I don't even know that regular CO2 emissions have a discernible effect, uh, but certainly methane doesn't. And so this is just, you know, uh, uh, much ado about nothing. Right. Well, we um, th thanks, guys. That's very good comments. Um, we're really having a lot of fun on this show, but we are going to start to round the fourth curve and come and come to the finish line here. So uh, let's go to some questions. Um, one of the questions here actually made me think of a, a tweet you had out um, a, a little bit ago. If you do not follow Junk Science on X slash Twitter. Uh, you're missing out. Steve, I don't know how you get any of the work done. You tweet probably uh, 400 times a day, it seems, and you're always in my feed. Uh, it's good stuff. I trained my cat. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Your cat can dial 911 and also tweet for you. That's great. So uh, so here's the question uh, from GuffPot. Uh, question, this new SAF, sustainable aviation fuel, should it be mandatory for private jets going to the cop jamboree? And apparently it costs a fortune. Uh, the tweet I was thinking about, uh, Steve, I believe, was from you. Uh, they made this big announcement that a that a plane oh. finally flew across the Atlantic, like like Lindbergh or something, uh, yeah. based on on biofuel. Um, apparently, they glided into the to the uh, you know some kind of historic thing. So, talk a little bit about so-called sustainable aviation fuel, which is a bit of a niche subject, but it's pretty interesting. I, I think um, I think they flew in with only a 12% mix of biofuels, but it doesn't really matter. Um, so biofuels um, are less efficient than conventional fuels. So when you use them, when you fly with them, you, you actually emit more because they're less efficient. They cost more, are less efficient. Um, you know, what, what's the upside to them? Um, there is none. Um, you know, the aviation industry, uh, they fall into the trap we just talked about in the last segment about uh, corporations trying to play the climate game. Um, you know, they, they, they've tried carbon offsets to offset, you know, their emissions. Of course, that doesn't really work. Um, you know, if, if nothing else, even, even if it were true that emissions were a problem, um, you know, it, it takes forests 20 years to grow, but emissions come out immediately. And, and so there's just a mismatch there. Um, it, it, the bottom line with the airline industry is that the only way for them to reduce emissions is by flying less. 
and they don't want to do that. So I guess they figured out that if they claim they're using sustainable aviation fuel, um, you know, some stupid people are going to go, oh, yeah, so there's fewer emissions. And, and that's just not true. You know, I, I, I don't know much about the aviation fuel that they're using. But uh, what I do know about so-called sustainable fuels is that, for instance, biodiesel, it doesn't do well in cold temperatures. Um, now, you're not going to use that in a jet. But I'm wondering if this, the biofuels, look, they got to get up to pretty high. And it's cold up there. I wonder if that'll affect their operations. I don't want to plow on that airplane. Well, that's why they only uh, and, use. And, and, it's why they use a mix. Well, the, the, but but the and 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 as, and as far as the mix, you talk you talked about how long it takes to grow a forest, right? Well, my suspicion is they're not making these biofuels from a forest. No, no, no. They're making them from food yeah. stock, right. from corn, or right. from. Uh, sugar cane or from some other food product that could otherwise be going to feed people. Right. So they're, they're basically trading few fuel for food right. and that's making food more expensive and it's leading to fewer people being able to have access to affordable food. Yeah, no, when I was talking about the uh, forest, that was in the, in the co uh, context of, of carbon offsets. Right. Um, like Delta Airlines was big into buying carbon offsets so that it could emit as much as it wanted flying. And so that that's bad. So today in the front page of the New York Times, there's this uh, big article about how, um, you know, the the, uh, uh, the ethanol industry is basically sucking out all the water out of the uh, uh, Midwest aquifers. And, uh, you know, if, we, if they were to go to sustainable fuel, I mean, Sterling, you're right. You, you were burning food as fuel. It's unnecessary. There's there are people that are starving around the world. Yeah, it's morally bankrupt. Morally bankrupt, right? It, it's also, you know, unnecessarily depleting valuable groundwater in the Midwest. I mean, I can see draining groundwater to feed people. I can't see draining groundwater to fly airplanes. I mean, we have oil and conventional fuels for all that. Uh, it's just, you know, it's another twisted. Um, you know, green result. And um, we, we just, we have, we are so far behind in educating people in what's what. I'd, I'd love to see that. I'm sorry, Linnea. You're good. You had something. I was just going to say, I'd like to see, I'll, I'll believe them when the people at COP, the leaders, the elites fly over to these places in an all electric airplane. And by the way, I'd like them all packed into the same electric airplane. <laughs> but then I'm not a kind person. So, um, what I was going to say is uh, United tells you your like how much CO2 is emitted per flight now on your checkout or when you're considering different flights to take. It now will tell you. So, I guess now I really do have, I really do pay a lot of attention to that. And I very much take my carbon dioxide emissions into account when I'm choosing flights. If there's two flights that are the same cost and neither of them are an inconvenient time i will always pick the higher emissions <laughs> but um so does steve. steve sometimes buys two tickets just to uh, right. yeah. <laughs> joking aside though um there are some environmentalists and i've seen articles in the guardian and also in i believe the wall street journal that point out that even from the green perspective biofuels are maybe the worst thing you could do <laughs> um because not only do they take up a lot of land that can uh, it ends up pushing ranchers in south 
South America, um, further into like pristine jungle land and stuff when they uh, take up more of the farmland for producing. Usually it's sugarcane down there. Um, it's palm oil in uh, the Pacific and it's soybeans and corn in the United States. Um, the corn ethanol, as far as I've been able to tell through the research that we do for energy at a glance is uh, probably one of the worst ones because corn is pretty water hungry. And as Steve said, you know, if they're taking drawing down from aquifers, the problem is with this issue, um, it's really hard to get like this isn't even a political sides issue with the biofuels thing. Um, Republicans love throwing money at mm -hmm. ethanol subsidies just as much yep. as Democrats do. So it's it's the biggest uphill battle to try to get people to turn. And I actually think that it's more likely that people on the left side of the aisle will turn on the ethanol subsidies before people on the right side of the aisle do. Mm. And then all of a sudden you'll get a bunch of Republican candidates who are talking about protecting um, the ethanol industry. <laughs> yeah. yeah, things well, go you know, I, I can accept it if people would just say, yes, we're paying them because they're politically important versus they're saving the planet. Which yeah, right, right, exactly. Right. Well, we have one last question. I think this is a good one to go out on. It's uh, by... Uh, Ivan Hunter, all laughing aside, and, and thanks, Ivan. I'm glad you laughed and had a good time. That's part of the point of the show is to is to have a good time. How do we stop this madness? And, you know, I think that's a good question. I think we ask it of ourselves a lot uh, at the Heartland Institute and among our, our friends and allies and other other organizations in the movement. And uh, my, my theory is that, you know, a lot of the stuff that we talk about that's kind of nutty, you know, it's kind of on the fringe. It doesn't very much affect everybody's everyday life. It may affect some people's everyday life, but a lot of these ideas that they, for a long time, they could just, you know, write them off like, oh, those crazy people. Oh, why, you know, you, you, they're, they're using biofuels in their buses in San Francisco to virtue signal. They're telling you what your carbon footprint is when you're flying on United. Um, my theory, guys, is that uh, this madness ends when it starts to greatly impact people's actual lives. And that, that, will, that will result in kind of a, you know, a revolution of sorts against this sort of madness. What do you think? It, it's already greatly impacting people's lives, but they don't realize that that's what's impacting it. I mean, look, power is failing all over this country. It's due to climate policies. It's due to getting rid of coal. It's due to putting online more intermittent power. And until we can convince people that that's the real problem, it's not just, oh, the infrastructure's aging. Oh, this, that, and the other. Until we can get the megaphone and convince people that they're already being negatively impacted and harmed by these policies, uh, it, the madness won't end. Well said. Uh, and Steve? Yeah, no, I, look, uh, it, a, a lot of what's going wrong in the world is because of green policies. Inflation, that is Joe Biden's decision um, to go, go, you know, conduct war against fossil fuels. The war in Ukraine, uh, that, uh, you know, I'll trace that right back to climate, you know, the climate idiocy that caused Germany to, you know, start dependent on Russia and financing Russia, making it rich enough to go into Ukraine. Um, there's a lot of, pro you know, this green stuff has failed everywhere. It's been tried. It's only propped up by government subsidies. Um, you know, and, and I agree with Sterling that, you know, once people see their standard of living declining, you know, hopefully they'll dial into what the problem is. Of course, we also learned that during COVID, uh, you know, people just lose their minds when 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 they believe there's some sort of emergency. They've got to listen to the government. Uh, 
So I don't know, we've got our work cut out for us, no question about that. We certainly do. And uh, one way to help us with this work that's cut out for us, as I mentioned at the top of the show, is to support the Heartland Institute. You can go to heartland.org. There is a donate button. We'd love you to join our efforts to bring climate realism to the world. Another place you can learn more about climate realism is a website titled climaterealism.com. Sterling Burnett and Linnea contribute regularly to that. Sometimes we steal an article or two from Steve Malloy's junkscience.com and post it there as well. Visit all of those sites to get the truth about what's happening to our climate and arm yourselves for, frankly, the ideological war to come. Thank you so much for listening to the show this week. And we will talk to you next time.